You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Live. Yo, Chubba, myself, Umar Bhatti, and with me is Takreem Malik. Takreem, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing, not doing bad. Um, been a bit of a busy week. Busy, busy week weekend. Indeed. Oh, giving us a taste already what we're going to talk about. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, some exciting events coming up in the next week. Yes. But then we'll get more into that later. I wonder what it is. Mm. But yes, um, we've got exciting show really. Um, if you're, of course, from the MD Muslim community, you will know what is happening next weekend. But if you're not, we will dive right into it for you. Um, just the weather, of course, is a bit dampening. A uh, bit of a sad weather. Um, looks like the heat has left us in the UK to go down to the south of uh, Europe, and uh, around Europe, to be honest. But nevertheless, we're here to uh, be your... Uh, be distracting you for the next two hours at least. Um, remember, this is a live interactive show, though, man. So you can call us on 0208 687 7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Now, as we usually do, we start off with the uh, news um, news items, uh, some interesting news that we may have seen um, throughout the week or month. Um, Takrim, uh, you wanted to give us a bit of a taste? Yeah, sure. So, um, <clears throat> Keeping the weather in mind, which today actually has not been too bad, but um, turns out uh, temperatures are rising across the world um, recently, and it was actually the hottest day on record globally. Uh, 17.8 degrees average temperature across the world on the 6th of July, and that is yeah that is one of the one of the highest records. So it's interesting. I, I read I was reading a little bit about this. Um, seems like phenomenon such as El Nino, which is uh, which uh, changes the weather quite a bit and increases uh, massively in temperature, has been happening. Um, but some experts argue that climate change is, is, you know, causing the majority of this increase. While others argue this is, you know, the natural ebb and flow of the Earth has has climate has the, the temperature going up and down. So there's still uh, more research to be done. But one thing's for certain that humans are contributing to the environment in one way or another. And you know whether we can rectify our actions, you know, sooner rather than later is is yet to be seen. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, I mean, we're not really. Um, how do you call it? Not, we, we we know what's happening in around the world, right? And uh, we know if you're living, especially in London, you know what's happening on the streets mm. where protesters are actually taking on the streets trying to do, uh, in the name of peaceful protest, trying to get um, uh, the public to understand what is happening um, with the world. And th- what you highlighted is, I guess, what they are trying to highlight to us as well. Um, I, uh, you know, it's... it's it, it, we got to think about it. We got to think about it because um, it is. Um, I can say I certainly felt it last last year. Mm. Know, I think I remember last year was like about forty. Mm. Uh, at some point, or at some point in the summer, or even forty three, but it was it was too hot. Uh, we got to look after our planet uh, much better. Yeah, and and certainly the argument. Some someone argue that perhaps instead of focusing on private consumers, really want to be looking at the big businesses. You know, people yes. that. You know the, the the car industry in the in the U.S., for example, their methane gas release and you know all these factories that are p- putting pollutants in the air, and perhaps they we better focus for them to focus on on them, um, who are way more producers, for example, of fossil fuels and and uh, all these greenhouse gases and so on and so forth. And some people argue that just stop oil are kind of they're targeting the wrong people, really. Um, yeah, but that is the argument. Is that's the argument? But and I guess that there's some truth to that. We should really focus on you know what the biggest, how they can be the most effective, really. Um, but again, one thing for certain that something something has to change and has to change soon. I think. Mm, yeah, thank you for that piece. Uh, well, uh, well, I was actually telling you before as well that um, 
there's another group coming now out who has just stopped something <laughs> off, you know, really, um, you know, people getting tired of um, these peaceful protests because it's actually ruining the day-to-day lives. So, and your argument is that maybe we should, we shouldn't be targeting people like us. Maybe it should be the big corporations. That is to see. Let's see what happens. We've got an election coming up next year. So maybe just up or may stand for it. You never know. Um, now, um, well, I'm going to go back into the football because I think this is a bit, this is big news. And it was big news last time because this person played, he scored, he won the match. And this is the reason he is there. Uh, Lionel Messi is, of course, considered as one of the greatest ever uh, to play the sport. Um, his um, status is um, really a pr- etched into history by winning the World Cup, especially with uh, Argentina, who've been looking to. And that was the one piece that he was missing, really, to win the World Cup with a team because the World Cup is the biggest and highest calibre of a trophy that you can win as a player. Now, he's arrived at uh, Major League Soccer, which is the United uh, American version of uh, the Premier League. Uh, And what you have seen maybe yesterday is that he scored on his debut, a free kick, 94th minute, last minute of the game. One nil, and everyone goes crazy. There are some big stars there, uh, there of course, as well. But I'm more interested about actually the fact we have two leagues now trying to go head to head each other, uh, where money is uh, limitless, and where players tend to go uh, when they are at the end of end of their peak, really. But what we're seeing now is players starting to go to both leagues at sort of relative, relatively start of the league. Um, the league I'm talking about is the Saudi league. And the Saudi league is now starting to, uh, you know, it's got the other big name, Cristiano Ronaldo, or another great of the game. Uh, you, know, you know, there's always arguments whether he's better than Messi or if, he's, if he isn't. Anyways, that is a, a debate which you can have for many, many, t- many, many long times. And... Um, yeah. Why, why, why Tell us what your answer is to that. Who uh, do you think is better, Messi or Ronaldo? Uh, I, I'm the uh, well, how are this, how are this presenter, so I need to stay uh, oh. partial. Okay, partial. Outside of the outside of the show. Uh, I'll tell you outside <laughs> of the show. <laughs> very, very vocal about that. Yeah. <laughs> but it reminds me of actually, you know, you saying uh, the league in China, I don't remember a few years yes. ago, Oscar's big mm-hmm. money move back then from your favourite team. Yeah. I don't know if you say it or not, but Chelsea, yes. um, gone downhill recently. But that was that was you know in the, at that time people were saying this is going to be the next, the next big the next big and same thing. with the Russia the Russian league as well. Exactly, there might be mm. before my time, but it didn't really work out then. So it'd be interesting to see how you know how this works out. In Miami, of course, David Beckham, I believe, um, you know, part owner, part part owner of that, and you know one of the main reasons for their success, mm. um, financial success, I suppose, not league. I think they're bottom of the league right now. Yeah. But maybe Messi can change that. And uh, again, it's interesting to see that Paul opposite of Ronaldo in Saudi Arabia Messi in MLS you know mm. let's see what's happening and then we have the GOAT the actual real GOAT Steven Gerrard in Saudi Arabia <laughs> <as well. laughs> so, yeah uh, no it's interesting because um, of course Messi and, and Ronaldo bring in um, commercial um, what do you call it um, interest interest into the game as well so going to either league split up the commercial interest really mm. of uh, who's going to do what uh, it is going to be interesting to see what how the uh, MLS um, improves and how mm. the Saudi Saudi league improves because uh, if we look at the um, Saudi league then it is of course um, in terms of money 10 times bigger than the MLS mm. uh, because it's got limitless uh, money but um Funds, uh, but we'll have to see what what happens. One thing, though, I don't want the the commercialization of, of sort of soccer, as they call it in the in the US. Soccer. I really hope that that doesn't you know turn to the Super Bowl. You know, yes, exactly. halfway halfway shows by I don't know who 
Drake or whatever at football show will never catch on, hopefully. We, um, we don't want that. No. I've seen some questionable chants already, so, you know, I'm really hoping they maintain the spirit of football and not soccer. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing we're going to do, uh, make sure that the Americans don't take away our sport and glory. But yeah. That, did, you, did you did you see um, Ronaldo's statement a couple of days ago? Yes. And then that was really oh, interesting seen, as well. So yeah, tell us. He, he mentioned... Um, well, we all know this was the case. He knew he was quiet before, mm. but he mentioned recently that you were all criticizing me mm. for coming here mm. to Saudi um, for certain reasons. You guys made rumors up and stuff. And he said, now, nah, look, everyone's come. Mm. So in a way, I'm the one who's opened up this path for people to come. People wanted to come. Mm. And then uh, you can't be criticizing everyone mm. because it's a choice they're making. This also shows that people did want to go. Mm. You know, a lot of players did want to go. And like you mentioned, it's not just people who are the age of retirement. Mm. Some people who had still a lot of things to do. So Ruben Nevis is one of the people from Wolves mm. who actually who was actually high demand. Mm. But he decided to go to Saudi. And that's Ronaldo's the goat. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's, that's, that's the Queen's opinion right there. Ronaldo's the goat. Uh, what did you see what Di Maria did to him? Did you see that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> now we're just talking about... Now we're just talking about football. But yeah, no, I think the, the interesting thing will be to see in the next year or two how both leagues, um, you know, uh, go from strength to strength or from strength to weakness, really, mm-hmm. and whether they can... Um, keep attracting players and whether the, whether interesting Saudi can keep uh, pumping up money mm. which it wants because it, you know it is in line with their 2030 vision which is yeah. their no, greater in a, in a way I'm, a, I'm also excited to see yeah. what's happening at first I, I was probably of that mindset as well like um, this is about the money mm. but now um, especially after seeing Saudi's movement in the World Cup they're mm. bidding for major tournaments now as well um, it'd be good to see someone uh, in that region um, also rising up and becoming a very dominant in that sport. Exactly. I really want to see more of that homegrown talent. You know, I think what makes the leagues, Spain, um, you know, England really special is that you have people like Dele Ali, Declan Rice, people that come up, you know, that are not that well known, for example, and they're homegrown talents, let's say, and they come up and they rise and they shine. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, I'm, I, I would be interested to see how, you know, the real goat, Steven Gerrard, can cultivate some of those um, players. And I really want to see some, you know, some more Saudi Arabian names out there. Yeah. And that, I think, will be crucial for sustainability and the, yeah. the, the long-term just, success of, of both leagues. Of course. Um, it's all about bringing up the youth to the top. Exactly. But yeah, um, Dikrim, you have uh, another one Yes, about uh, the strikes? Yeah, I did, actually. So, um, taking it back a few days, actually, um, a lot of people are probably aware of this now, but uh, quite a few civil servants and civil workers have offered pay rises recently. Um, as you know, there was a junior doctor strike, um, followed by a consultant strike recently. Um, the teachers were striking as well in schools. I think the police officers would think about striking. Um, and so the government really had to do a massive pay review. And the results of it are roughly between 5 and 7% all of these, these workers have been offered pay rises. And actually the responses to all these are quite interesting. If I just run through them quickly, it turns out teachers are actually quite happy with the budget and the pay rise, mainly because it's not coming from their budget, um, from existing budgets. So it'll be where the government tops it up. Um, and so the teaching unions are quite happy um, and they're saying that, you know, they, they recognise, they, they appreciate the offer and accepting the offer and they, they rec- they're they valuing how the government is recognising their importance. Compare that to strike contracts to junior doctors who offered 6% as well, um, teacher 65 sorry, and £1,250 consolidated increase. Bear in mind they were asking for 35%, which is, which is quite a lot of course. Um, they have rejected it again saying this is a real terms pay cut. Um, and in real terms, you know, I think salaries have declined 20, 25% since 20, 2016. Um, and so it doesn't really seem like there'll be an end to that deadlock. I believe there's a, there was a five-day strike recently last week, I believe it was, um, or two weeks ago that happened again. And after the time being, you know, it seems like it's going to carry on. 
And as someone, again, who's, who's interested in this field, it's interesting to see how the members of the BMA this year, the president, vice president, the committee, all seem quite hardcore members. Again, that's my personal personal opinion. But their stance in negotiations has been quite firm, unlike that of recent years uh, before them, for example, mm. um, who are kind, kind of seen as easy to, you know, easily rolled over and that kind of stuff. Mm. So... Again, when this deadlock will break, you know, will the spirits of the new doctors break first? Bear in mind, there's no new cohort coming in literally a week or so time. Start of August, first of August um, is when the new cohort of junior doctors starts. Mm-hmm. So will stuff be ready by then? I don't know. I have friends who are in final year, and they're um, they have not received details of their placement yet. They oh, wow. don't really have much idea what's going on because of all these strikes. So mm-hmm. it's be interesting. Interesting. Stuff. And. And the police officers, well, uh, they received a pay cut of seven percent, which actually was pay cut or pay rise. A pay rise, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I hope it's a pay rise, um, yeah. but of a seven percent, which is the highest actually of, of all of these. And the their federation is saying that it's mixed feelings, really. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I think there was also discussion around where's this additional budget coming from. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting conversation as well. I was talking to my brother recently about this and the whole economics thing about it because he he knows about that more than me, mm. and he was explaining of course that. To, to need this money to, to fund all these pay rises, either you cut the budget or you, you, you print more money, right? And printing money, from my very basic understanding, is going to increase inflation, inflation yeah. which is not great for the economy, which is already interest rates are sky high. Or you probably know, and Rohansa, you probably know better than me uh, about yeah. this, but it doesn't seem like there's a, an easy way out. The, the thing is that um, I'm not saying that um, there shouldn't be money made available. The, the appropriate avenue should be used for it. So I think some people were discussing on social media was that um, for these pay rises, where are we making cuts in budget? Are we making the right places? Or are we making it at places where we're putting other people in a difficult position? So I remember some people talking about how um, this is going to affect uh, some policies when it comes to migrants and asylum seekers and the allowances they receive. And that's going to be reduced, etc. Mm-hmm. In that sense, are we really... Um, this is morally right or ethically the right solution to reduce the money um, when it comes to a group of people who are underprivileged, really struggling, mm. and then giving it to people who also deserve mm. to obviously get the pay rise due to the work they're doing. There was an argument, actually, that um, people might be wondering, you know, what is the solution then? Now we can have infinite number of strikes, for example, because neither side are backing down. No. There was an argument that the NHS budget, for example, can be mis- can be managed way more appropriately mm. um, from certain arms. Remember, we spent millions and millions of pounds on PPE that was then dumped because it wasn't sufficient. Mm. So, you know, that kind of money and those kind of budgets perhaps needs to be another independent pay review body that needs to have a look at that, that data and see how and if we can, you know, switch uh, change some of the numbers around. And if, you know, the NHS going forward does need to be more privatised, that's a whole other conversation as well. Um, I think that's one conversation that we need to have sometime soon. Mm. Yeah, no, really interesting. I mean, just one final thought before we take a break. Um, are you... Are you thinking right now, are you looking to, you know, qualify and then leave the NHS? Because I'm talking to some one, one of my friends, he's, he wants to leave once he's, I don't know, after F3, I guess, or whenever that is. That's a really interesting conversation. Literally last week, I had a massive argument in the house about this with my parents. <laughs> I mentioned America, my mum was like, went absolutely ballistic, <laughs> absolutely no chance. But my dad, my dad was all for it. Yeah. The, the, the thing is, I think, I'm not sure if we've, we've discussed this before, but that concept of brain drain is slowly what you're seeing the devaluation of medical degree in the US, in, mm. in the UK, the fact that the GMC has withdrawn the UK registration uh, for overseas medics, so you, you can't practice medicine outside the UK without a special license from January 2024. All these things, the fact that you can earn 10 times as much money, literally 10 or 15 times as much money in the same number of years in America after graduation than the UK, all these factors are, are leading to more and more people considering Australia, Canada, America yep. as routes 
after FTF3, like you said. And yeah, maybe that is the way for me as well. Mm, no, and the reason why you mentioned they um, made those new rules was because a lot of people were choosing to leave. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. We're uh, having to import degree. our nurses and mm. doctors now as well, which yeah. is uh, quite upsetting. Get the degree and leave. Yeah. Exactly. That's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> Even ACPs and advanced clinical practitioners and, and physician associates, for example, they have been given increasingly more responsibilities. I'm not sure if we talked about this, but there was a recent very big case actually in the news of a patient who died from a pulmonary embolism. It's quite a common thing. A 27-year-old, I think she was, mm-hmm. quite young. And she saw someone who she, she thought was a doctor, but actually right. was a physician associate, which is a three-year degree, and saw them twice. Uh, they said there was anxiety a week later, literally a week between the symptoms starting, she passed away because of that. Okay. It's a little clot in her lungs, that's what it was. And very easily found out, there's one test for it, the solution is very, give them aspirin or some kind of anticoagulant, it's quite an easy treatment. But people are saying that due to the lack of knowledge base of the physician associate, who she saw twice, for example, this is now leading to actually causing mortalities and this is why it's so dangerous for the NHS going forward. Mm. But again, you know, this is a, a long, long topic. It's a danger mm. of... Um Degrading our NHS Exactly. The quality uh, of care. Quality of care, yeah. Is being affected. It's quality of quantity once again. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. I think we'll take a break and uh, we'll go with our main topic of the show, which is the, the Jalsa Salana, as people say, or the annual convention. Uh, lots, of, lots of talk about that, uh, but join us after a short break. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. Take note how the Holy Prophet of Islam remained resolute and steadfast in his claim to prophethood from beginning to end in the face of thousands of dangers and a multitude of enemies and threatening opponents. For years on end, he endures such hardship and suffering as increased from day to day, enough to make one despair of success. It is inconceivable for a man with worldly motives to have shown such prolonged endurance and steadfastness. Not only that, by putting forth his claim to prophethood, he even lost the support he had previously enjoyed. The price he had to pay for his one claim was to confront a hundred thousand contentions and invite a multitude of calamities to befall upon his head. He was exiled from his homeland, pursued with intent to murder. His home and belongings were destroyed. Several attempts on his life were made by poisoning. Those who were his well-wishers began to harbour ill for him. Friends turned into foes. For an age which seemed eternity, he braved such hardships, which are beyond a pretender and imposter to suffer through. Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbours. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbours with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasized consideration towards one neighbors so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbor would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Dhar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbor might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbor should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favourite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbour. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, 
I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbor is not secure against injury and ill treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbor. He asked people not to object to their neighbors driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbor. He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the day of judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. Here, myself, Umbati. And now a full, complete set of my co-hosts with me is Ruhan Al-Ajima, Hamad Khan and Takrim Malik. Um, we've just uh, finished talking about um, the news, just a couple of news items that we had. Quite interesting uh, to, uh, to to see what was still happening in and around the world, but one news story which which we want to cover in to the full of extent and will be the majority of the of the show is uh, the Jalsa Salana, and uh, I guess to our internal viewers they'll know what this convention is, but to our external viewers they may not know or they may have heard about this if you're living around uh, some MD mosques. Uh, must have seen so many guests now coming and mosques getting slightly more busier, um, people from in around the country coming, hearing different accents, uh, the Americans, the Yankees, the Australians, the Germans, whatever they are. And um, I guess it's a culmination of people coming together for one particular reason. Rohan, you've been at the site and the game as well, but I, I think you've been on the site maybe more. Yeah, we'll go straight to you. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm actually looking at, keep looking outside the, outside the window right now to see what, whether it's raining or not, mm. because potentially I have to go back on site today. And uh, um, as you mentioned, it's uh, we're starting to see the hustle and bustle happening. Mm. Even here, we're currently at the Belfortu Mosque, the largest mosque in Britain, and the preparations going on. I don't know if you guys saw the flags that have been put up for different countries and different officers are set up outside as well. So that's what really gets you know gets you into the spirit of Jalsa Salana. So. Mm. Jalsa Salana is the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, as you mentioned. And uh, we have people attend from all across the world, especially since the UK one is the international convention. You know, other countries, Germany, US, Canada. Actually, US, Canada had this last weekend. Um, Palestine had this this weekend as well, and West Bank and uh, Israel. And uh, we are celebrating the international one where we have people attending from over 100 countries at least from around the world with guests coming as well. 
And uh, usually we have around, I think just before COVID, we had around 30, just over 38,000 people who attended. Mm. But this is the first open Jalsa, in a sense, where all restrictions have been lifted now. And uh, we keep hearing rumours and numbers flying around of yeah. how many people are going to come this year. <laughs> and I think I think I, if I was to um, estimate, I'd say around just over 40k, mm. 40,000, which is a lot. Mm. Um, I mean, even 38,000 is a lot. But uh, yeah, just to put it, I mean, if you see some of the pictures that the, the photographers take, then it's a surreal um, experience, well, a picture to see. And I guess what we probably want to discuss is uh, some of our memories because, as you mentioned rightly, this is the first uh, open and first international uh, Jalsa since uh, the pandemic. Uh, last one was, of course, in 2019. 2020 was more of an online Jalsa where only a few people got to go. Then 2021 was, uh, uh, it was I think, to do with a bit more... Um, 2021 was quite a small one. Very, very small, small one, one. Yeah, yeah, like 10,000, I think. I think I think duty workers were open, but yeah. everyone else could only attend like one day. Yes, yeah, there was some sort of restriction. Then last year was a bit more open for whole UK to attend with some international guests allowed. Now, yeah, and, and what, what I was surprised about last year was it was mainly UK. I think UK. there was some guests, but still we had around 30k people. Yeah. And, and you're missing the character of the Johnson because like Rohan, yeah. you said that this which is now the largest Muslim convention in the UK, the Jalsa Solana, it's, it attracts an international audience. So, you know, so I've been going ever since I can remember from like mm. five years old or six years And you're used to hearing all those accents and seeing all those people in their different cultural cl- clothing just come around. And it's an absolutely incredible sort of s- spiritual moment. And it's been missing for the past three years. I think that's what we're saying yeah. just because of the restrictions. No. Uh, I think I'm very much excited to go back um, and uh, see... A lot of flags, a lot of people representing their flags, I guess. Um, you know, uh, you, you don't get to see so many different people from so many different... Uh, and even from... I wouldn't even have thought I would see people and know people who are MD Muslims from, I don't know, South America or mm-hmm. little Pacific islands in and around um, uh, Australia. Yeah. And it just shows you how far... And it, it gives you a visual representation of where... Uh, the community is established and has progressed to and you know of course we get that report from his holiness every year about uh, the progress of the community and then you get to actually see it uh, in person uh, at the international uh, and I guess this is one of the unique things and uh, honourable thing, honourable event that the UK can hold because of course we have this his holiness residing here and that we have the honour uh, to be um, organising it and what's incredible about this, I think, is that one of the few events that, you know, from start to finish, 28 days, mm. a 205-acre farmland is transformed into the place of this gathering. And it's only been, the only reason that is possible is due to the amount of volunteers that make up the Jalsa. Mm. So we talk about the, the participants coming from over 100 different countries, and they, you know, they're here to, you know, enjoy Jalsa atmosphere, you know, take away some knowledge and listen to speeches and, you know, mingle and form brotherhood and, that kind of, and, and all that. But I think the volunteers, especially, we should have a little bit, a bit of talk about that because to transform literal farmland where farm animals are kept, you know, to a whole site and back down again, wind it all down within 28 days, I think it's not it's not an insignificant achievement. It's actually no. a very, very big thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, you have around 7,000 volunteers mm. uh, working, of course, not at once, mm. but throughout the no. whole 28 days, mm. trying to build up... Um, uh, marquees. Of course, you have contractors where where needs be for obvious reasons. You know, you can't actually build a marquee, uh, those tent marquees, without having some of the contractors there. But the main part of the work, which is to um, maybe put the carpet, um, 
I don't know, I remember being uh, build, building a marquee, you know, with it, um, um, uh, building the floor of the marquee yeah. and uh, making sure that it looks nice. It's all clean, you know, yeah. little stuff which uh, his homeless also recognizes is important because, you know, at the end of the day, we are hosting the guests of the Promised Messiah uh, because this is not just uh, an event which takes place here. And as you mentioned, it takes place around the whole world. But I guess we should delve a bit into also the history of the mm. ev- event, which it goes all the way back to anyone know? So the first day of Joseph, <clears throat> so the first day of gathering that happened was in 1891 there you are. in Gardion, where 75 people attended. And it wasn't actually planned to be a Joseph at the time. It was actually an administrative meeting that was happening of the what we call the Anjuman, which is the administrative body of the community. And uh, they were discussing some matters, and within that they discussed some religious matters as well, since they were gathering for the first time in numbers like that. And uh, it was on the 27th, 28th, and 29th of December that this took place. And the Promised Messiah, on this year, the day after, on the 30th, he realized that this was quite beneficial, and he made an announcement that this should happen every single year. And he printed this in his book, um, the heavenly decree um, and he put an announcement at the end of this book where he said that this should happen every single year and within that he mentioned what the purpose of this is all of how it has religious benefits for all the attendants um, who truly do participate with the right spirit but also it um, builds sp- um, brotherhood and uh, um, bonds of fraternity as well so for that purpose it's very important as well and since then we can see since 1891 it's still going on especially in Guardian it happens every single year as well but now it's branched to, to across the world I'm not sure exactly how many justices there are but uh, I'd say I guess around at least 50 happening now across the world which is quite a lot exactly and just in the break we were reminiscing about 2008 which is one of the largest Jalsal gatherings that we attended in the UK in the UK in the UK yeah. at least and yeah, I remember being six years old, preparing for it for months. We had a, a small kind of radio speaker, like a cassette thing. We put a CD in and it blasts out the noise or wherever you play in it. And in the mosque, I remember there's, a, there's about five, six of us, uh, maybe 10, 15 of us actually, that would practice singing or reciting uh, poems, um, you know, in praise of, of, of uh, you know, Islamic teaching of values in the community and so on and so forth. I remember practicing for weeks and weeks on end, you know, wearing, we, I think, the Bosnian representing their community for example again representing the internationalness and the international values of the Jalsa mm. which like I said is another example how the Ahmadiyya community is not a closed sect it's such an open sect mm. and it's such a forthcoming sect in all parts of the world um, and so that that practice that that took up you know a good month or so a couple of months even to prepare for that one day and then I remember going there standing reciting uh, in front of the Caliph and so on and so forth and that was just a very special day which I still remember to this day you know over 14 years later 15 years later um, and that is the beauty of the Jalsa, that it's just literally, it's a collection of memories that it stays with you for a whole lifetime. Yep. But I also think, you know, we're talking about the personal, emotional aspects of it, and it's, and it's beautiful to see all these cultures celebrating and coming together in spiritual brotherhood. But like you said, Rohan, when you're talking about why was this actually instated in the community, what, what purpose does it actually serve? Mm. We're talking about hundreds of thousands in some countries and thousands of Muslims in this country coming together for three days and essentially focusing on spiritual rejuvenation. Mm. They're talking about how they can increase their love for God themselves and for Islam. And I think it's something so incredibly heartening when you see other people. You know, we talk about our spirituality and the seasons of spirituality and everyone's going through their struggles and you know, Islam is about 
you know, maintaining that struggle for the goodness of yourself and for your society and everyone else. But when you see other people having that same aim and goal coming in, coming into the market, and you see other people from around the world, like you said, uh, the Green, that it just, you're no longer in your bubble. And it, I think it's almost like the same effect that you have when you, you just see the universality of Islam. Right, you see, everyone, everyone's here with the same aim. Everyone here is, you know, aiming to be better versions of themselves, better spiritual versions of themselves. And we're sitting here, we're listening to speeches on the attributes of God, the importance of Islam, the values and teachings of um, uh, Islam and Muslim characteristics that we can inculcate in our everyday lives. And it's just, it's... It's a convention that I don't think you will see outside of our community. I don't think there is a convention, that, that even in academia or in society mm. in general, I don't, I, it's quite remarkable. I think also inclusive, inclusive is not sometimes a word that people you know, refer to Muslim communities in that sense. But I genuinely think this is one of the most inclusive events that any community can hold. You have academia, you know, with all the speeches, you have academic education with the exhibitions. You know, we had a real religions exhibition. We were talking about, you know, historical artifacts to, to Turin Shroud and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and archaeology. And then you have the moral education, again, in the speeches, you know, how to, for example, be able to better develop your morals. And these aren't instructive speeches, they're not instructions, they're not commandments. They're ways for us to reflect upon and think about. And so that whole self-guided meditation part of it and the self-reflection aspect of it is covered as well. And beyond that, then you have the, the brotherhood aspect of it. You know, we have the bazaar, we have places where people can mingle, talk, old friends catch up. I remember I used to sometimes hate when I was younger going from my, going with my, sitting with my dad and leaving the convention during the break to go to the bathroom because guaranteed be stopped by at least <laughs> 10 different people from random countries. I remember meeting some random guy from Gambia that my dad knew and hadn't seen in 15 years. And so it was just, you know, we all hated that because it meant a 10 minute trip was half an hour. Yeah. And I'd just be there like, oh, you know, who are all these people? But later on, I realized that is the beauty of the community. That, that All these people that my dad is meeting and all this emotion that I joy and that friendship that he's built over these years coming to the forefront. That is, again, serving the aspect of that community as well. Eating together, sharing food together, breaking bread together. Another wonderful aspect of it as well. So you can see how in all these kinds of ways, it ticks all these boxes, you know, and just it's just an extraordinary experience. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think um, you'd all also agree with me that um, when it comes to this, our community, the Jamaat, uh, this is the event that we look forward to the most every mm. single year. And again, regardless of how many times you go to it, we're still just ex- excited mm. about serving, about doing our duties, about attending all the addresses, the exhibitions, seeing everything. And like you mentioned, most of all, meeting friends. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people you only see once a year. Yeah. That's that Jalsa. That is true. And... Um, I think there's also a deeper philosophy behind this as well. So we know there's religious benefits, moral training, gaining mm. knowledge, building brotherhood. But I think as humans, we are beings who crave social interaction, attention as well. Absolutely. And so I think this is, Joseph Solana is a place where we are able to maximize it the most, keeping our faith in mind, but also the spirit of brotherhood as well. It reminds me of one thing that Madad always says that in, in a GP practice sometimes he sees people that come in elderly people um, and he always says how they are always on their own for some reason and they they feel that social isolation because their, their parents are, their children have left home they may be in care homes for example if they're living on their own living independently it's them their partner may have passed away and so they lead a very kind of isolated life and they sometimes come into the practice with not many issues not many illnesses but just to speak to someone mm. and just to have that human contact and Matt always, always used to say to me when we were younger that we're so lucky to have these kind of events the Jalsa is, yeah. is the one event but every weekend every week there's something going on in the community the, ex- the auxiliary branch of the young males of the young men and the young women as well they're doing events for and example elderly. and the elderly exactly and the young and every inclusive again like I said yeah. 
the social events, educational events, to maintain that social contact as humans that is so necessary for our survival. Mm. That's how we became, you know, apex predators or whatever. And so that's why it's so, these kind of events are what, what you know, ties the community together. And that is what I think the world is in, is in dire need of today. Is this social prescribing? I was going to say we're talking. <laughs> uh, no, but, but but I think we can't underestimate uh, under uh, underestimate the, the, this sort of meeting and these gatherings that we have. I, I was thinking about it the other day. Actually, I'm actually craving and in need of. So you're talking about prescribing. I feel like I need to prescribe myself this jalsa <laughs> because I've you know I haven't been in my community um, for quite a few times um, this past year, and I feel that sort of social isolation, and, and I'm so looking forward to it. Mm. But I also know that I the outcome of it isn't just going to be oh I'm going to rejuvenate some friendships there and whatever mm. I am going to have this other so the, one of the main things is that we do the birth this mm. uh, 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 oath essentially a spiritual oath pledge of allegiance mm. on, on the last day and again it's this concept of spiritual rejuvenation and you think spiritual rejuvenation of what to what to who well it's to your, towards your own self and towards your religion and towards God and I, I've worked for I've done duty for quite a lot of these jalsas in these external guests that we get whether they're journalists or just friends of the community or just people who are interested and they're blown away by the fact that there's this sense of self-discipline. You know, people are coming here because they want to improve themselves. Mm. They, you know, it's it's this sort of like I said, the sense of struggle or the purpose of increasing your spirituality. Um, and yeah, I just can't I can't wait to be surrounded by that atmosphere as well. Um, we can talk about the the health benefits and social benefits yeah. about just all day long. But that one point, like you said, that oath taking, people take so many courses, so many self meditation classes. All just to you know to write down their their, their you know the oaths to themselves, their promises to themselves. They keep diaries, you know. They try and manifest all the things they want in their life. And here you have a perfect example of that, of you know making those vows to yourself, not to anyone. Well, perhaps to anyone as well. But the main thing being to yourself, vowing that you want to improve, and having that amplified by, like we said, forty thousand over forty thousand other people doing the same thing alongside you really renews those you know those bonds of brotherhood and that self-discipline within you there's something there when you hear those roughly 40,000 people crowd chanting with you in that sense that mm. you know I believe and affirm that there is only one God that you know I will, I'll um, try to improve my own life and um, strive towards the principle of Islam essentially is the message of the Pledge of Allegiance mm. and for the, not just your faith and also for your country it's, it's remarkable I remember you know we've been going there since we were young and I used to hear this sound at the time that people did the oath of allegiance, I didn't understand what it was, and then I realized it was because when people were prostrating, they were actually crying. There was it was such an emotional thing, and it was an emotional release as well mm. for people because again, you know, after a whole year, they've suddenly come back into their community. Perhaps they've suddenly realized the importance of you know being a Muslim and how they can inculcate it again, and they perhaps you know lost the idea of how they can carry their Islamic character in a modern day life. But then they come back and they for, for these three days they reaffirm it again, mm. and it's this very emotional and personal connection that you hear from people having with their god and it's quite remarkable yeah i think i think i think i remember someone describing it as where the marquee becomes like a pot uh, mm. of water or something bubbling inside it mm. and that's our emotions that represents our emotions bubbling inside and the noise that's mm. happening as well and everything we've kind of um, suppressed within us uh, no care of who's around us obviously there's a lot of people there's like well, thousands of people in the marquee but we let it all out mm. in that moment and it's kind of like a shared letting out as well and I think like you mentioned that's very important but I think what's also important is mentioning where, where this originates from the Pledge of Allegiance so 
This is actually not something which is exclusive to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, but this uh, has started since the inception or beginning of Islam, where the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, used to take a pledge of allegiance for those people that were joining the community, the Jamaat, the uh, Islam, in a sense, who were converting to Islam. And this involved um, him placing his hand out and uh, people putting their hand on his and uh, repeating the words that he used to mention, which obviously starts with every Muslim affirms the unity of God, that there's no God but Allah. And the second affirmation we make is that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is the servant and the messenger of Allah. And this is necessary to be a Muslim, of course. And then after that, there's a secondary um, requirements that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, used to put in as well, which used to vary from um, group to group. Sometimes you'd ask people, um, I promise never to lie again. I promise to take care of my neighbours, etc. So you used to have these secondary requirements as well. And now we've fixed a set uh, pledge of allegiance, which the Khalifa makes, um, and which people actually... Um, sign off as well in a way when they join the community as well where they're, they're given the Pledge of Allegiance form and they take part in that but the benefit of that like uh, Hamad mentioned is that uh, you're making a physical kind of demonstration of a promise that's what it is so rather than just affirming in your head you're actually able to act it out as well mm. and uh, we believe in Islam strongly that everything every physical action has a spiritual implication as well which is very important here and uh, doing that as a big group together, like I mentioned, is bubbles up those emotions. Mm. Um, so that's absolutely necessary for us to do so. And like you said, it rejuvenates our faith every year. Because the purpose of birth is twofold. First, we make a promise. Uh, well, first, we seek forgiveness for our sins. So that's the first thing. And the secondary meaning of birth, it means ruju. It means to return. Meaning that once we seek forgiveness, we promise that we'll never return to that path again. And uh, we will abstain from all those sins. Mm. And uh, only if we truly act upon those mm. things are we understanding our birth and fulfilling its requirements. Exactly. And, and again, I'd like to just stress one point that although this is such a significant event and so moving and so so warming, again, it's not some kind of magical moment where we believe, you know, some kind of magic descends and everyone becomes angels again. In, I'd say it's a reminder, it's, it's a place mark in our lives every year. A reminder for us to remember on this moment and reminders of our responsibilities. And this process of self-actualization and meditation and self-reflection and improvement continues the whole year. And every week, the leader of the community, His Holiness, the fifth, may, may Allah strengthen his hand, he gives us those reminders. And so this is not something that happens once a year. It happens something that happens every week, really. But it's just that moment of, the, of that all coming together at one moment and that leaving an imprint on our soul almost and bearing, like you said, a physical... A physical reminder to us, a memory for us to cherish and to hold on to in those times where perhaps, you know, our faith is being swept away by the winds of, of you know, worldliness. We can hold on to that memory and remind, remind ourselves about, you know, why we're doing this and, and then who we're doing this for, which is ourselves. Yeah, and I think the most uh, the thing that stands out the most for me, and we don't do this because the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has told us, or the Prophet Messiah, as Mizakullah Muhammad, may God be pleased with him, has told us to do so, is God directly who requires such a Pledge of Allegiance to take place. And it mentions clearly in the Quran that um, the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, weren't put in the hands of pledging allegiance to the Holy Prophet, mm. but it was the hand of Allah, in a metaphorical sense, mm. over the hands of the believers. And they were pledging their allegiance to God. And one of the most famous um, Pledges of Allegiance was the Beth that is one, the Pledge of the Tree, mm. when the companions were being prevented from going into Mecca to perform pilgrimage. Uh, a time of heightened persecution, and one of the close companions had uh, was uh, assumed um, to have been martyred when he went to take a message uh, into 
Makkah and there was Hazrat Usman Zitalano. So when the companions heard that this message came out, Hazrat Usman had been martyred. They had made a pledge of allegiance to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. But the pledge there was more significant that they were truly, truly meant that regardless of what happens now, we're going to Makkah and we're ready to sacrifice our lives for the sake of our faith. Mm. So that pledge also shows us that the pledge we're making really is a pledge of our life. We are handing our soul over. And that's what the first Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community mentioned as well. Mulana um, Hakim Mulbi Nuruddin, may Allah be pleased with him. He mentioned um, that uh, pledging, it's like, you know how in Islam we have a ghusl. Um, when someone passes away, we have to do ghusl of the body. And this means that yeah, we wash the body, we do ablution of the body. And that body is lifeless, it can't move. So he says when you do pledge to the Khalifa, you need to become like a body that's is being done on. So the Khalifa is controlling your body and washing it in that way. Mm. And you're completely have no control over your senses, your physical ability. You become a lifeless limp in the hope of fulfilling the requirements that the Khalifa wants. Again, I think it's an amazing analogy for describing, you know, the level of obedience required. And this modern day age sometimes, independence is so valued and as it should be sometimes and you know, kind of forging your own identity, your own path is such a valued thing. But suddenly forget that there's so many thousands of years of human history, thousands of years, or over one and a half thousand years of Islamic history and Islamic lessons. And so those lessons and, and those morals that, you know, that they've taught, that they teach, that they've passed on, they're not without value themselves. Essentially, it's, it's a distillation of all human knowledge that was in a human knowledge that was, you know, ultimately we believe came from God Almighty himself, that was in the Quran, that has been passed down to us. And so these historical examples, like you mentioned, you know, the pledges at the time of the Holy Prophet the pledges a few hundred years ago with the first caliph and the pledges we do now, they all stem from that sequence of, uh, you know, allegiance and obedience and those values, which sometimes those values feel like they're being eroded. It reminds you of, you know, when you're a child, sometimes you listen, your parents say, you know, don't play with fire. Mm. As, a, as a kid, I don't know, it was just a bit weird. I just quite like fire. No, I'm with you there. Pe- yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just fascinating. <laughs> weird people here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watch out. Um, the, whatever, and then also, I think the worst thing was that when my parents left home because I wasn't allowed, that's when I would do it uh. and set a piece of paper on fire. Probably wasn't a good idea. But keep, keep, keep them away from the mosque. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. And, but, my parents used to say, you know, don't do this. And I was like, I don't understand it. And there were so many points where they used to say, oh, don't do this or you shouldn't do this. And I, I wouldn't understand the wisdom behind it. But as I got old then, I understood the wisdom why, for example. And burning the house down is not something I want to do. It's not something that's good for me. And so many of the points like that, the wisdom that at that time I didn't understand, as I grew older and I went through some hard lessons, I, I learned those lessons, that's when I, I had that wisdom. And so the way I see it is that the, the rules of Islam and the knowledge that's passed down it's knowledge gained from Allah the Almighty and it's knowledge that has been gone through all these lessons and all the people that have gone before us, they've experienced this and they've, they've you know, it's distillation of that knowledge basically. And instead of us making mistakes and going through those lessons again, having to learn it from day one, we're being given that knowledge, that wisdom in its purest form, straight from the source itself. And so that's why, you know, it's always a good reminder for me to kind of counteract those values that we are taught sometimes or taught to value more. Independence, for example, is valued more than obedience, it seems like. It's a good reminder that actually sometimes, uh, you know, we need to look at past examples and see how they devoted their lives, how mm. they use that value of obedience in their lives to make themselves better and the world around them better as well. And so essentially what we're hearing from here is that this oath of allegiance, this pledge, and which is, I guess, the pinnacle of these three days of the Jalasa Sulana, it's identity affirming. Mm. It's recognizing who you are as a Muslim mm. and then recognizing the historical value of the people and these um 
incredible spiritual luminaries in Islam who have before you committed to this to these very same principles and values and ideas. And so it's understanding and recognizing that you too are a part of that history mm. and that this is the value and benefit of it. And yeah. I think that was quite an extraordinary, I, I just want to repeat it again because I, I never actually came across that quote and I saw Umar's reaction as well. He, he, he was, his, his mouth was open. His yeah. The idea that we're physically immobile or what do you say Rahan it was like we're um, lifeless like a limb right and that in that moment we talk about spiritual rejuvenation but it's under the hand of the Khalifa who's guided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we are now going over that sort of spiritual ablution again and that analogy of lifeless lifeless doesn't mean dead and I think English translation doesn't doesn't do it justice but Mm. the analogy of being like a limb is so beautiful Mm. it means that you're doing your own thing you're moving slightly independently you're doing your own thing but you're connected to the head the body and the head controls you whoever's whoever's done a ghusl of a dead body the washing they'll understand what that actually is Mm. how they're really stiff rigid body and you have to really force yourself to move them around Mm. and stuff like that but obviously they've got no control Mm. on after what's going on and again that stiffness that rigor mortis that again is a great analogy for how difficult it might be for us to mould ourselves and become like that yeah, um, exactly. That. Well. And I think, um, like you mentioned as well, uh, for that purpose, the Prophet has said that do not uh, regard this convention as a usual gathering that you have or the worldly gathering. That this is uh, ranks ahead of that. And for that purpose, every um, Ahmadi Muslim and guest as well should try to attend if they have the means possible to do so. And even when he made the announcement for the first shelter, he said uh, to really inculcate this within yourselves, uh, send me your names of those who promise to attend the next shelter. Mm. And I will then make a compilation and pray for them. And and, uh, so the quote here that, that I have from the promised Messiah, Salam, explaining the sort of idea of uh, institutionalizing this Jalsa Solana, he, he writes that the primary purpose of this convention is to enable every sincere individual to personally experience religious benefits. They may enhance their knowledge and due to their bless, due to their being blessed and enabled by Allah the Exalted, their perception of Allah may progress as well. So like like we said again, that, that, that we're not here, it's, it's like you know, people think, oh, this is a festival almost, right? Like this is, oh, you're, or you're just going to a conference or a convention. Or, but it's actually a very personal reason why you're actually going. Mm. And then we hear stories about people from around the world who have gone through so much struggle to actually get to this particular Jalsa mm. Salana. Mm. And you actually realise, oh, and this is what I meant to say, where the brotherhood is in the fact that you see the identity of yourself in others. Mm. I'm here. I'm here to improve myself and my spirituality. He's here too. And exactly, I think... If people really want to find out if Islam is a original piece of terror, we believe this is the place to be. Yeah, and I think we'll, we're going to go off to a break now, but uh, we will continue this discussion straight up where we'll talk about volunteering and our personal involvement at the Jalsa Salana as well. Indeed, thank you uh, for listening so far. Uh, we'll take a short break now for the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Your job myself, Umar Bhatti, uh, my co-host, uh, Rohan Lajima, Hamad Khan, and Takrim Malik. We've just had a uh, introductory, contextualized um, uh, discussion, really, about Jalsa, talking about a lot of things, just to give you an overview, basically. Um, now we're going to go sort of a bit more deeper into what the Jalsa Salana is, talk a bit about our own experience. We've been speaking about our own experience, but more about uh, what are we going to be doing there, because you know we've, we've been speaking about the 7,000 people that are predominantly volunteers at the Jalsa Salana, 
beforehand, during and after. What are we doing there to be part of that 7,000 people? And I guess we'll hopefully end there by seeing what, what, what are we looking most forward to at the Jalsa as well. Um, but uh, I guess, Hamad, maybe you can kick us off with some... Uh, what, uh, what what is about Jalsa this year? I guess uh, I mean everything. I mean it's the cost of living crisis. Um, we just come out of pandemic. Fifty seventh year as well. Fifty seventh year. Everything's yeah. going up. Yeah. So yeah. L- let's let's ground it in the practicality of it. Like you said, there's this context in the background of you know everyone you know struggling to you know get back on their feet organizationally. Talking about yeah. just organizing things logistically. You know. Um, getting deliveries in place, making sure you've, you've got logistics in place, security in place. And then at the same time, we're organizing something for, we're aiming to organize something for 50,000 people, mm. right? And at the same time, like uh, the green you said at the beginning, it's this incredible engineering operation where you've got a working farm. And then is it across 21 days, I think? It's around three 20, weeks. 28 days. 28 days, yeah, four weeks. Yeah. You completely just uh, renovate the entire working farm into basically a small city mm. and you've got to put your you know irrigation system in there you've got to put your tracking for your cars in there you've got to put you know um, internet access you know people are trying to you know, we're going to be broadcasting live from this farm essentially in the English countryside so all of that is going on and then you've got about 7,000 volunteers as well um, and it's quite a remarkable operation just you know let's let's think about the food as well so you know for three days we're t- trying to feed around 40 to 50,000 people so the, the, the the cream, do you know anything about that operation? That's funny you mentioned that. I was having a look at, um, you know, the logistics about that recently. And it was so so interesting to see how for these three days, the preparation starts weeks in advance. They have little packets of, you know, lentil dolls, four different dolls that they, they use in the in the Jossa thing, uh, in the Jossa doll. And they pre-prepare the packets beforehand. So all they do is soak in water, add the lentils in. They have packets of everything ready, all the spices and so on and so forth. And I think 112 pots of dal lentils are made over the three days and the total figure i believe is around two hundred thousand meals over three days are provided um and so you know whichever way you think about it simply it's a massive massive organization so f- four uh, types of lentils four types of lentils you know, black urid um split split back black bean brown bean masoor so just, many different types dal, man. i was gonna say this is if for the listeners it's a famous yeah. sort of institution in itself the jalsa dal and the alugosh oh, essentially that you get yeah. the debate well i don't know what's <laughs> alugosh dal. guys come but on you just can't go i'm out back in dal. No, dal. it's gotta be dal, dal. Uh, split we split that's the original right that's yeah. where what would have started humble beginnings humble beginnings alugosh you know we've made it now i mean it's past as well now so the pasta rice yeah, rice so. is really good as yeah. well I mean even the naan bread and the roti that you have that's you know, it's around 10,000 that you're you know cooking and producing per hour per uh, hour using the um, automated it's the, extraordinary the, what we call the roti plant mm. the bread, the bread factory, factory the bread yeah. factory but that, that's been revolutionary as well ever since we had that and even just you know talking about you know who who carries this operation and you're thinking about it from the eyes of the guests that I you know sometimes host in the Jalsa, they're always astounded and I guess it says says a lot they're like oh so it's not the women, <laughs> it's not the women that are cooking there oh so actually it's all the men that are, yes 
it's so everyone that's behind this cooking operation, the all these logistical op- operations, it's to do with the, the male volunteers. That's not to do with the fact that we don't trust the women. In fact, I'm pretty sure the women can absolutely um, master it um, be, beyond our measure. Um, it's to do with the responsibility that we have, and also in a way, you're reversing this misconception and stereotypical concept of um, having men at the forefront of everything and women, you know, being in the back in the kitchen and helping everything. And it's actually not; it's quite the opposite. It's it's so funny you mentioned that. I was actually speaking to a couple of uh, food bloggers the other day, and there were two points that they really mentioned that they were really surprised surprised about. And it's the fact that you've got police officers, doctors, and imams who all take time out, who are all volunteering to make this food. And second of all, it's completely subverting the the typical South Asian stereotype. Even though this jalsa is not for so South Asians, um, but it's subverting that stereotype of you know women are cooking in the kitchen and and the men are you know delivering the food or the men are you know the ones who are spreading whatever. It was actually it's almost the other way around where the men are cooking the food. And the gels in the women's section, for example, you have the women's teams that distribute the food, the, you know, tens and I think hundreds of, of women that are involved in doing that on their own side. And so I think it's that it's another example of the inclusivity and the unique nature of this gelsa is that, you know, we're doing so much to combat these stereotypes. And it's so, again, it's another USP, another another remarkable point about this about this convention that I think you rarely find anywhere else. I mean, a quarter of a million meals made across three days. That 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 that, that that's that figure. Mm. Um, it's 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 not it's not an easy operation. Um, and the fact that our volunteers, uh, you know, are put, putting effort into this, it's always I always think of it. It's it's literally mission impossible. This job, but it happens every year, and it happens on time, and it happens really well. Mm. It reminds me of this story, but um, I think there's a journalist or someone that came to came to Jalsa. Um, and uh, she, she, I might be quoting this incorrectly, but she came in and um, she got the food and then um, she said, oh, how much is it, by the way? <laughs> and, and she's surprised to know that, you know, it's it's free for all participants. Yeah, take another free <laughs> exactly. box left. Take in. one for home. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm sure she was, she was given a few uh, of the boxes to take home as well. And she's just surprised at how, how, not just the food, but the whole convention is, is free at the point of course that anyone can come and attend for free. I think that's an interesting co- discussion as well about what does it take to provide those quarter million meals and to you know convert this farmland into a working site into a convention for 28 days what are the logistical costs of that in terms of manpower in terms of money as well i think that's a very interesting discussion we can have as well yeah i think the challenge there like you mentioned is the 28 days Hmm. where we have got permission to set up the whole site make a mini village in a sense uh, have the event and then take it down within those 28 days as well which is the ultimate challenge and i think that's that challenge is what makes it more fun as well it is because um I'm sure all of us in the past have gone there and helped out or currently are helping out over there. And for me, um, I don't get to help out at home doing a deal. I have to be assistant to my dad. I have to watch him hold the, do the, do the <laughs> ugly stuff, really, which she doesn't get, which she doesn't want to do. But at Jalsa, if anything, you're there and they're like, hey, you do it. Yeah. Of course, you're being supervised. You're not being just going, mm. yeah, go do build a t- uh, marquee <laughs> 10 foot high. But you're being told and you're being um, taught live lessons. Mm. And my first experience was when I was, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, drilling um, the floor. Mm. And I've never done it. My dad has never let me touch a drill uh, when I was, <laughs> I think, around 18 or 17. Reason. Yeah, of course, for good reason. But over there, I was, uh, I was like, are you sure you want me to do it? He's like, yeah, go ahead. Nothing will happen. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, this is fun. This is fun. And there was appropriate safety protocols so, in place. Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, Hard hats, everything. <laughs> exactly, yeah. there was everything there. Um, you know, we're being supervised at the time as well. Mm. So, um, it, yeah. it, it, it gives um, everyone who volunteers actually um, an added benefit, um, unique setting point if you want to say that, and a different 
a life skill as well because uh, some things you just don't get to do. Who gets to be? Who gets to cook for uh, forty thousand people uh, for an event uh, and cook for two hundred uh, nearly quarter million meals yeah, for someone? That's, or that's what I was gonna say. Or, well, or do be riding buggies for guests? Uh, yeah. Like I can safely say, all of my social skills came from doing the bunny yes. duty, uh, like a, of a course, five year old. Goes all the way down to the youngsters who yeah, that's, carrying that's, out that's, water. That's the important point I was going to mention as well. That some people might wonder that why are there seven thousand volunteers? Do you really need that many people? <laughs> doing it but it's not necessarily all those 7,000 people are essential workers who are needed what we in our community what we try to do is we try to encourage young people youngsters mm. yeah, as young as 10 even sometimes to try to engage in helping out as well mm. of course they're not the ones holding the drills <laughs> and <laughs> cooking the meals but we try to uh, start with the small steps so for example as you mentioned Hamad is the water duty so there's a group of kids who are uh, walking around the main marquee when the main sessions are going on and they're offering water to everyone everyone wants to hold it they're holding plastic cups and a water bottle and giving it to everyone so in that sense we're trying to inculcate that spirit of volunteering mm. and service and uh, all the members of the community as well us for in this room why are we volunteering because we also believe that it is a blessed thing to do mm. that is the right thing to do and uh, that we also have a responsibility to serve the guests that are attending and uh, his holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in his address yesterday uh, his Friday sermon yesterday mm. he also mentioned the last 10 minutes the responsibilities of workers uh, of volunteers, uh, duty workers to the guests that are coming and he particularly mentioned a line which was that um, we should treat every single person who's participating or attending the Jalsa as if they are the guests of the promised Messiah himself and give them that special treatment and again I think those, those two points there that value of obedience, those values that we talked about earlier as well Inculcating that self-discipline and obedience at a young age, you know, learning, knowing how to take orders, how to work in a team, how to lead a team. These are essential skills that people take courses for. People yeah. have to learn through experience, through work, you know, and you're getting all this for free. Where else, like you said, will you have the chance to work in a team, to lead a team, yeah. to develop skills that you'll never have a chance to do otherwise? And second of all, again, it contributes to the, it contributes to the idea of this is not a convention for the guests, for example. Or it's not a convention for people, it's not for you. It's our convention. Mm. You, we've, like you said, you've put the carpets down. Someone else is, give, is giving water out there. Someone else has made the meals. Everyone's contributed to being part of it. And the volunteers, like you said, there's 7,000 of them. But they're not just volunteers. They're also attendees of the, of the jail site itself. Mm. So it's a dual role where I think one of the only conventions, for example, where the volunteers are also the participants. And so you have the same people that you might go and make, the same people that cook the food beforehand, they might go down and sit a speech and be served by someone giving water. Yep. And so in, that, in that, that dual role there, that is so unique again to the Jilsa. Yeah. Uh, and, now, uh, and like you said, um, it's all on my CV. <laughs> Everything I've done at every Jilsa. Like, yeah. It's been 10 years of doing duties now and I've had to do something different all the time as well. And I think that does really benefit you because like you mentioned, where else can you say you got this experience? So I'm, let's say I'm going for a job um, uh, as an engineer or whatever. Mm. They're like, well, how did you get to make meals, 200,000 meals over a weekend? Or how are you volunteering for an international TV channel? Mm. And things like that. And th those things really help us for our personal development, mm. skills, experience, uh, social skills as well, particularly. Um, but they also keep us uh, thinking in a different way as well, or challenging other issues in our professional lives, in our daily lives, and how to deal with those things as well. Right, let's do it. Let's do the duty rounds. So what's everyone doing across the three days? Let's start with uh, Rohan. Great. Um, <laughs> so like I said, I try to do different things every year. Uh, so I've not been consistently in one place. So this year, um, one thing I'm doing is uh, running a social media account. So that's also very important. One thing we've really improved on over the years is press and media and social media coverage. And uh, also we are doing exhibitions 
for the outreach department. Mm. So guided tours and guests will come as well. So I'm doing that. And uh, as we've been mentioning, anyone can attend the Jalsa. Mm. So obviously our listeners, if anyone wants to attend the Jalsa, um, be part of the largest Muslim convention where you can take part in various um, exhibitions, listen to addresses, including keynote speeches from His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, then you too can attend. And you can register online on the greatmuslimconference.org. Um, to attend as well. Uh, j- j- just on that, before we quickly move on to everyone else's duties, I think it's quite remarkable thinking about the fact that we're doing press for this conference. Mm. And the reason why is because, you know, have you heard about this conference outside of the community? Very little. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. And why? You know, there's this idea of, you know, we project this image and character of Islam and Muslims and how they behave and how they act and what their uh, you know, personal private beliefs are. And this conference, this convention rather, sorry, completely goes against that. Mm. You've got Muslims from 100 different countries around the world coming in peace, tolerance, inclusivity and spiritual discipline for three days for self-improvement. Mm. I've never heard that in the big airwaves. Mm. And so it's vitally important, I think, you, you know, the duty that you do when we say that, oh, we work in prayer. It's so important that we are able to project the truths of a Muslim character uh, into into British media, um, and it's incredible that we um, we do get you know this isn't like some sort of cynical criticism. We do get um, press involvement, and it, and it's heartening to see um, journalists from independent media organisations, from main regional to national um, news organisations, covering this. It's this idea of reflecting that actually this is who British Muslims are, and we're able to really steep ourselves in the spirituality of Islam, but also uphold the values and beliefs that you think is um, central to being British in this country, rather. And I think subverting the mainstream narrative is, is can be quite quite hard sometimes. And that is why I think, you know, you might not see much coverage of it, but that's why we're working so hard to get this message out to you, because we're holding this brilliant event, which again is open for everyone. And that's why, you know, we'd love for all our, view, our listeners to come in and experience this for themselves. And that's why, you know, we're talking about today as well. Um, and I think that's a nice segue into a stalwart of the press and media team. Omar, would you, would you like to share us more about what you do? Uh, <laughs> well, me, me and Takrim, I guess, I can speak for both of us, yeah. uh, working the uh, press team. So we're, of course, um, trying to get journalists on board, um, of course, giving them an angle of uh, news, really, of what is this journalist about? You know, we talk, I mean, previously we all, always talk about, and people still talk about, um, you know, when they're, where are these in quotation about moderate Muslims, but you know, where are these Muslims that stand up uh, to the extremist Muslims? You know, we're here, we're right here. And as you mentioned, uh, Hamad as well, that you know, this is a, this is a jalsa, not just for us, but for everyone. And we invite people to come and uh, have a look into our uh, three day life, I guess, or three day rejuvenation of, of spirituality. And I guess there are uh, some hard times uh, with the press, of course. They are looking for something extravagant. We're offering them something else possibly. But uh, hopefully by them coming to the event, uh, we can, um, with one journalist at a time, we can try to uh, push them towards uh, something that they have a good experience of. And we have. I've had people come to me uh, where I have had the chance to host uh, journalists. And they're just so um, surprised at the large scale event, how everyone is volunteering, how everyone is actually smiling at each other, how everyone knows each other somehow. Uh, you know, I don't think you go to an event where you just know maybe half of the <laughs> half of the attendees, because that's yeah. what it feels like when you go mm-hmm. to this, uh, when you go to a, a annual convention like this over there in the Muslim community, where, uh, and as um, the Kareem mentioned, like when, uh, when you were younger, your dad used to stop, 
that exactly happens when you're with a journalist sometimes because you see them when you you know of course you're with a guest you know you can't go stopping or talking to him but you know you're just acknowledging by saying salam mm. peace be upon you you know and they're like oh you know him oh I've seen you say <laughs> you know salam to everyone do you know like everyone at this so you know yeah. it's the beauty of uh, the universe, universality of Islam and how we all um, are together I'm going to pick something out that might get cut off air, so apologies in advance. But there's, the, Umar, you mentioned something about this idea of moderate Muslim, mm. right? I hate that term. Okay. I am not a moderate Muslim. <laughs> I am extremely Muslim, rather. Oh, nice. And I think that point is, and this is the purpose of, of this convention as well, to show in the extremeness of our Muslimness that there's nothing to be afraid of, mm. that actually there's something to be admired, that actually the the spirituality that we're inculcating in our, in our community is something that you can see observe be proud of be neighbor uh, be, be um, confident neighbors with in uh, solidarity with um and so yeah this yeah. this is this isn't and a you know we don't like to shy away from our muslimness yeah. and say we're moderate muslimness be pr- you know I, I like to say be proud of the extremeness in muslim in islam as well which is actually nothing to be afraid of and uh, there's nothing to be scared of for anyone oh, the, what you see at the event is islam not moderate islam like no. you mentioned it's important and like um you guys mentioned as well the challenges with the getting out to the press as well because it's very difficult to sell faith in a godless society so that's why the appeal might not be seen as much but this is more than just um, faith in a sense of um, promoting faith but uh, this event is one where we are promoting peace love harmony tolerance equality uh, love for all hatred for none and that in itself is an absolutely vital and important essential message in this day and age with the current climate and situation that is going on as well. Exactly. And some people, you know, describe the Ahmadi Muslim community or Ahmadis as liberal Muslims. Well, actually, we're probably the most orthodox Muslims. And it's actually the innate nature of Islam and Islamic teachings are what some people may, may, may find liberal, for example. And actually, the most orthodox teachings are, of ext- are, are those of extremity, like you said. But not of extreme violence, they're of extreme peace, extreme mm. love. An extreme openness and extreme tolerance those are the extreme values that we promote and these are the values that society needs really um and I, and I see that and I explain that so my duty that I have I, I, I work with the outreach department I do tours for these guests whether they're you know your journalists or whether they're friends of the community or people who are work colleagues and they, they're just uh, intrigued and interested in this three day Muslim event I remember this journalist was like I had no idea what I was getting into I was she's from America she's like I was on a plane and I was thinking why on earth am I coming here and she said and she said very confidently and I'm glad she said she said, I was frightened I'm coming into the space with 40,000 Muslims I've never really seen one Muslim in my life you know and she and I could see in her eyes you know as the conversation was going she, she was just utterly surprised by the actual outcome of this uh, convention mm. the outcome and the character of the people that she met here um, across the three days and seeing this operation just come to life and seeing people have their spiritual discipline and seeing everyone just be friendly um, it, was, it was quite remarkable to see and I always see the jalsa from the guests eyes um, from the external eyes as it were and it's just interesting to see um, people's sort of biases and stereotypes and misconceptions just melt away across these three days. And the amount of individual stories as well that I have from Jalsa, we've talked about the main points already, you know, the main broad points of you know, the convention, the brotherhood and the, and the oath and the, the three days and, and the food and so on and so forth. But the individual unique stories that come from Jalsa are very interesting. Sometimes the press like to pick up on these aspects as well. For example, um, there's a there's a woman, a British Muslim woman from a South Asian background called Adia Shokat, and she she's a hijab wearing Muslim uh, woman, and she's a farmer actually, and but she's not your typical farmer. What she's been doing is she's experimenting with sustainable farming uh, 
on on this two and a half uh, two two hundred five acre site of the Jalsa, and actually implementing the outcomes of a project in Africa and empowering local communities to grow food and produce uh, you know products in an independent and sustainable way. And she's that agricultural lead of the IAAAE, the International Association of Ahmadi Architects and Engineers. And so we can see how again the Jalsa it's it's a stepping stone. It's a it's a, a launch pad, a platform where people are going to do great things basically like I said the experimental farming sustainable farming that she experiments with here is going to help people in Africa and so again there's so many small individual stories of the Jilsa that I think are so relevant and so interesting that a lot of people don't know about know, find about and that is you know like I said me and Omar in the press team we want to push these stories out and tell people about Jilsa and tell people about the connotation and the interesting and exciting prospects that come out of the Jilsa yeah what are, what are some of the well, that's I think that's quite generic though when it comes to press and media mm. or some of the other duties that come to mind. What have you guys yeah. done in the past? Oh, in the past. One thing I've done, uh, I tried once. Well, this is the first year the roti plant was there, the mm. bread ma- the bread mm. making machine. And I went to try it out. I was like, let's go see. This is about a couple of days before Joe. So they started literally a week before start making, making work. So from today, it'll start. Mm. And... Uh, I only lasted three hours. <laughs> I realised this is much more tough than I thought it would be. It was really, really hard there, firstly. And uh, we... The quickest resignation. Yeah. <laughs> you had three hours, only 20 minutes and I left. <laughs> but it was um, free. We were basically just eating, munching on bread, just snacking on bread, the, the roti the whole time in there. Um, and what you could see, there's a lot, again, a lot of youngsters you know how they pack the um, into like packs of five or ten, mm. and so what? That's what a lot of the young guys are doing there. Um, so it comes through. So a two group of people prepare the dough, make the arta and stuff mm. like that, and then it goes in a big bunch right into the um, machine, and just you wait for it. It's pretty fast as well. I can't remember the exact production. Ten thousand rotis per hour. Uh, that's crazy. That's yeah. that's, wow. that's the fastest, obviously. But mm. that's you won't even need that, obviously. Mm. But and it's interesting you say that. You know, we call it bread factory and a production line, so on and so forth. But the comparison between working there and working in actual factories is vast. You know, my brother last year worked as a production line uh, operative during his summer holidays mm-hmm. before uni. And, you know, the way he was treated, the way he was paid was, was horrendous. You know, he was forced to work and, and you know, the amount of pressure that was on him there. Compare that to the roti plant, it was three hours of hard work, don't get me wrong, and the production line was fast. Mm-hmm. But you treat, by, well, my experience anyway, was treated with so, such kindness. The person was overlooking it. He was helping us out as well. He was bringing mm-hmm. us water. They'd turn off, stop it every now and often for, for breaks. And, you know, whenever someone getting tired, they, they get substituted out. And it's just such a lovely atmosphere to be a part of working in, in a job, which is actually quite a hard job, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but the atmosphere and the kindness of the people around it made it enjoyable and people they specifically request working for that duty every year and they want to work there yeah. because of the love they receive yeah that, 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 that team's been quite consistent itself and like you mentioned every team I think every year meet like new people that come join different teams mm. and volunteers but you become friends with them mm. over the three days where you stay in touch with the rest of your life mm. like people I've met literally just at Jelsa and I have to keep in touch with them afterwards. Just on the food aspect of it, and we talked about the operational, operationalization of you know f- producing such huge you know, quarter million plates of food across these three days. I remember reading, and it stayed with me for, you know ever since. The spiritual actual significance of this ability of this community to be able to produce so much food for guests for free of charge. And actually, it's in Christianity, you have the Lord's Prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer is, you know, the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us on this day our daily bread. And this concept was here was that actually from the promised Messiah's community, the Imam Mahdi and the Messiah of the latter days, he's able to be able to provide the daily bread for, 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 for the community and actually for beyond the community and beyond the pales of the community. And in a sense, it's actually a sort of... Um, 
acceptance of this prayer and uh, being able to deliver this um, for for people, for guests, whoever it is, free of charge. um, And just to be able to hold this operation is quite remarkable. This is is actually He wrote about this in his book, Hakikat al-Wahi, Philosophy of Divine Revelation where he mentions that this has just started in Qadian for now. Mm. This uh, langar, what we call the mm. uh, community kitchen, is what you call it. But he said that one day this will be found in countries all around the world mm. and it will be continuously supply food without it finishing. Exactly. And that reminds me of Jesus fed what? Four, 400 people or how many hundred people with two loaves and, a, and some fish, right? And from those humble beginnings, from those 75 people in that first jalsa, you can see how now we are feeding hundreds, of, you know, tens of thousands of people at one event and hundreds and thousands of people across the world. And so this is, you know, that modern day retelling of that story, yeah. how a real life example of how such from small beginnings, so many people are being fed and being given their daily bread. Um, and it's not just obviously the food's not just three days a year. <laughs> We've got uh, community kitchens open every day here exactly. at the Balfatou Mosque, at the Fuzzle Mosque, at our community headquarters, Islamabad. Uh, three meals a day are being provided every single day for free. In terms of going back to the personal skills and developing that as well, um, I also sometimes do, well, for the past couple of years, I've been doing night duty at the first aid. Mm. And as a medical student, I of think course. this is a, <laughs> a something I have to bring up. But um, it's just, it's a way of. It really is probably, I always say this to, to my fellow Ahmadi medical students, what are some of the best work experiences, placements you can do in your life? There's nowhere else where you have three or four consultants who will give you two, three hours of their time and walk you through topics. You know, in hospital, as Hamad, as a fellow medical student knows, that you have on placement, you have five, six people, you have a couple of doctors, they're, they're doing their work, they don't want to be disturbed sometimes. You're brushed off so quick, you're just wasting your entire day there. No one wants you there, exactly. so you're not learning. The quality of teaching is, 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 is not great, really. But here you have consultants who will, I remember once I spent an entire night duty with a consultant cardiologist who explained to me the entire system of how the heart works in detail for about five hours. And, you know, <laughs> I think I got bored halfway through. But again, the way he was telling it as well, it really made me remember mm. and those points that you know even he mentioned to me then i still remember now and all the whole even the entire process of career paths after medicine and advice from older consultants and how best to make use of your time in medical school etc you won't find that anywhere else people will pay hundreds of hundreds of pounds to attend conferences by the royal site of medicine attend international conferences to gain that kind of knowledge that you get for free and yeah. this isn't a singular unique experience you know the green you've had that with the medical duty or overnight duty someone else is going to have that in the engineering department mm. and with the broadcasting department it's this idea of you know mentorship that is inaccessible to most people the mm. ex, uh, um, specialist mentorship um, that people are able to work on their skills and to be able to have access to um, have these work experiences even just the broadcasting of it we've got so many radio broadcast stations across, live across the three days the translation duties as well as live mm. translation and then you've got the uh, the br- huge uh, broadcasting operation with the Muslim te- uh, te- te- uh, television mm. Ahmadiyya, but MTA and um, you know it's 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 just extraordinary and yeah. the entire thing AMSA a little bit plug here I'm the Ahmadi Muslim <laughs> Student Association uh, is really the forefront of providing this unique mentorship because of the access to professions that we have for example teachers engineers doctors lawyers etc and actually during the days of the convention they're holding along with the press team they're holding this, this program this training program for young journalists mm. so people that are interested in journalism what they can do is they can turn up at a certain time and they'll be given you know, instructions or they mean they be given guidelines or mentorship and how they can best, you know, further develop in their career. And journalism again is one of those fields, for example, at like law, for example, correct me if I'm wrong, where mentorship and the contacts and knowing people is so vital and so yeah. important for your further learning. And so having access to real life people, ex BBC journalists, for example, that are in the press team, people who have made programs, made projects and videos for BBC, ITV and all these big corporations, they can tell you how 
which skills to work on, whether to be a graphic designer, how to prepare pitches to, to, to newspapers, how to deliver you know broadcasting uh, messages, and so on and so forth. And you really you yeah. can't get there anywhere else. I think that's a that's a good point. There, I didn't think about that. We were talking about learning from our the skills from the experience that mm. we're having, but not necessarily from the people that we're around. Mm. So I think even not just um, learning professionally, but I think it's also very interesting to hear different people's life stories. Mm. and having those shared experiences as well uh, in communications where we're meeting people from across the world. Like I said, that one well, that one consultant that I, I spoke to on that night shift, because of him I've been able to do five, six publications in medicine, which which is incredible. And I've only been able to do that because, like I said, it's not my hard work, it's because he was able to teach me mm. and guide me. And that contact developed from Jelsa. Yeah, mm. and we encourage that, especially yeah. youngsters as well. Even I, I just remembered as well that... Uh, I had this opportunity when I was around 40, 15 years old as well. But now I've got the responsibility that I've got a 14-year-old boy who's shadowing me and I take him around just and showing him different things, uh, social media, how does this work, taking interviews, stuff like that. So that way we encourage those um, skills to always remain and develop from a young age as well. And sometimes we see in, 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 in corporations, in, people are sometimes reluctant to share their skills and knowledge with those younger than them mm-hmm. for fear of being overtaken and being replaced almost, right? <laughs> Whereas here, being replaced is a good thing. One of the key aspects of leadership is being able to train a good success and a good team under you. Yeah. And like I said, like you just said, with Very the mentorship point. of the younger the, the young person, you're building a sustainable system that maintains mm-hmm. that this this convention, the knowledge and the skills that come with it over the past 100 years, that cumulative knowledge is not discarded. It's improved and passed on every single year. Yeah. Every single year you have red book points that are noted down and improved. And therefore, incrementally, this, this convention is a blessing in itself. You know, it's very ideas, very purpose is blessed. But every single year we see growth, we see progress. Mm. How from 75 people to 40,000 people, it's not an easy step. And But we've been able to do that because of, you know, the training schemes like you mentioned and the innate blessings and then the prayers that come along with this convention. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just a spiritual upskilling, essentially. It's that material, mental upskilling as well that you, you can go. take off into your own sort of um, daily lives, as it were. Yeah, like, like you said, one thing I try to do is I try to observe senior members within the community as well. Not necessarily because they can learn professional skills from them. They're not relevant to my professional <laughs> field. But uh, just to kind of observe the way the ways of working as well. So kind of managing their work, but also their conduct. Mm. and trying to learn those things from them, the elderly people in our community. And mm. I think that's very, very important for our generation to do as well. And again, that concept of doctors, teachers, imams, whoever working together, people, I, I know personally, I know computer software developers who earn hundreds of thousands of pounds a year and they'll be the ones cleaning the toilets alongside someone, mm. for example, who's not got a strong educational background as them, for example. Yeah, and yeah that's, be, a, that's a duty we didn't discuss. Exactly. Hygiene. Hygiene, and that's yeah. and you will be able to tell the difference in them. And again, people actually—that's actually one of the sought-out after duties. People actually, I know, request specifically to do that duty because they believe the blessings it, in yeah. doing the hard duties and serving the guests of the prime sire in that specific way. You just remind me, I think there was a famous tweet from an Ahmadi a couple of years back who was trying to complete his Oxford PhD and he he was on hygiene duty and he was completing it on the days as well and he took a picture of it and it was quite remarkable to see the perseverance there. But Rohan, even you're just speaking about learning from your elders, you reminded me. So I think it was in 2018, I decided to just shadow um, imams I'll be calling the community the imam of the London mosque the um, Fuzzle mosque in London and he, he is the longest serving um, missionary in our community actually worldwide and also one of the oldest and I learned so much from him just because quite a lot of the office duties were under his obligation and under his responsibility rather everything would go through him and it was just remarkable to see this 70 plus year old man 
being able to just carry out everything with such decorum and with such discipline. And it, I remember the first thing that he said to me when I entered his office and he said, you're not going to realise how many people are actually going to come here in the next couple of weeks. Mm. But the main thing that you need to make sure you do is proper mehman nawazi like taking care of the guests yeah. and I was like okay great I got that I got that. I can do that you know, this is quite his social yeah, skills yeah. but he said it in such a beautiful he said he had a little fridge there and he said whenever guests come don't ask them what they want because they'll feel shy don't mm. just bring out everything that you have and put it in the tray in front of them and they'll take it and he said that's exactly the example of Hazrat Ibrahim how he used to do it and it was such a small thing but I carried it with me um, ever since and the idea that you know like you said Rahan that we are welcoming the guests of the promised messiah that that's not a metaphor. These are people who have, whether they've converted or whether they're born in Ahmadiyya, they recognize the value, truth um, and importance of the renaissance of Islam through Ahmadiyya teachings. And they've committed themselves to this community, to, to, the, to, to, to the ideas that we have in this community and to the principles of Islam. And they're coming here. And it's, it's uh, an acceptance of the Promised Messiah's prayers as well to see the truth of Islam so that people can uh, spiritually better themselves. And it's recognising the importance of that and taking care of them in our own various capacities. Yeah, so much to learn from these people as well. And obviously, like you mentioned, uh, Imam Saib, Adal Mujib Rashid Saib, as you say, he's one of the officers, so one of the heads when it comes to just Islam. And these people have so much experience, you know, and organizing a festival of that size, you the experience you need or the um, kind of that work that goes into it, it's it's, uh, it's huge. And obviously we've got, only works because we have the organizational structure, mm. where you've got the heads, the officers, the wise heads, and then the uh, Nazmin, the heads of the departments, mm. and then their workers, their night, their assistants, their workers. And, and don't underestimate these guys. Don't think, oh, they're pale and stale and they're, you know, they're quite, you know, reserved and they're not able to do, like you said, they're running huge operations. Yeah. And he, I remember at one point, so we had a meeting with the stage designer who was doing the graphic design for the stage, mm-hmm. um, which is quite an important aspect of it because, you know, th- like you said, there's about 40,000 people who are just staring at this stage. Yeah, it's and it's a huge discussion to have, oh, what granic verse do, do we want on there? What, what theme do we want? What colours do we want? And all of that. And then at one point, um, Imam Saab was like, um, oh, let, can we just get a photocopy of this design and can you just um, print it out for me and he, he said this to me directly and then I was like this is huge almost like it's like six foot printer in his office and I just had to like tap a few things I couldn't get it right and I was like oh I don't know how to do it because I had to zoom the design he, he quietly comes he never shouted at me or anything he quietly comes over sorts it out himself it's a very technical printer that he used and he just pressed the buttons zoomed the designs like, that, that, that's how you do it carried on with the conversation they have very technical conversations and it's like you said it's a very technical convention as well mm. we talk about the spirituality of it. But it's a huge undertaking to do. You talk about the design, the broadcasting, the the um, structure, engineering of it all, and it's mm. absolutely incredible. Yeah, if you don't necessarily have the skills for every single department, so it's mm. not that I have any experience on how to work in, let's say, the uh, television, uh, MTA, and stuff like that. But what happens is you learn on the job and uh, the supportive um, environment that is created in every single mm. department at Jalsa enables the youngsters to learn rather than feel pressured or rather than being put down for not being knowing something. I think like you mentioned, mm. even the senior members, so mm. the heads of the event and stuff like that, of the community, they if they inculcate that spirit, it becomes the falls down in all the different departments as well. Going back to a slightly early point about the guests, we mentioned the guests, but let's talk about where they stay and you know where we stay during the Jalsa as well. Mm. So... I know you guys are London centric, and apparently the world rolls around London. But um, <laughs> being someone, <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. But being as someone who, who was born and bred in the north, um, although living in London now, obviously. But we need to come for jolsas and conventions. It, it used to be a matter of fact. You know, where do we stay? I remember some of my earliest memories in Islamabad, which is uh, where the mosque is situated, the the headquarters uh, where where his caliph resides. 
setting up tents there and you know i used to i loved it but also hated it because i hated insects still do and so it was kind of like why are we doing this what are, what are we doing here but as that transition into more into staying in the marquees and the big accommodation tents that we have at jail side yeah in a few years ago that was when i really saw that aspect of brotherhood you know mm. you're sleeping next to random people strangers and you have the those conversations you have for example when you're waking up at 3 a.m 4 a.m for morning prayers for example waking up the person next to you for example a complete stranger you don't know them but you have that brotherhood there you know, you're waking up, everyone's showering, not showering together, but showering, <laughs> showering separately, of course. Almost, almost, almost all there. But lining up, lining up uh, to shower. And, you know, that hospitality that you see, even when times people are, you know, they're a bit in the morning, they're a bit grumpy, they might be a little bit off. But even then, they have the respect and love for each other that, you mm. know, they might let someone else in front of line, so on and so forth. Then small examples of, of devotion and brotherhood. And do, you, do you guys choose to stay on site? <laughs> yeah. I, I, personally, oh, I never used to but last like five six years now i have and it's, it's amazing i was gonna say so i think in t- t- 2019 which i i regard as the last proper open yeah. j- jalsa that we had i stayed on site and it was an absolutely remarkable experience the the you uh, the creamy remind me just having waking up with the hajj you mm. know the very early morning prayer and seeing twilight and dawn just you know it's really mm. beautiful very cold because it's the countryside but still beautiful nonetheless mm. And then also the concept of um, actually just having everyone there, like like you said, that communal spirit, it was just, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, I think I think just the, it's just the vibes as well, right? You're yeah. Really, uh, so I've been, like I mentioned, I've, I, I do duty, but I always want to go volunteer the accommodation department as well. Mm. So we do, we've got two accommodations essentially set up on site. One is the main marquee accommodation, which is the big marquee where everyone's shared uh, area. And then we also have a tense area. <clears throat> where you can either hire tents or you can bring your own tents and set them up as well. And this year we are expecting over 300 tents mm. as well to be set up uh, by people themselves. Well, well, you just remind me, what I wanted to say about that, you know, this, like we talked about this community spirit, whether you're in tents or whether you're in the market, whatever it is. I remember even at one point, because I was taking around this guest with me, and he he, he, was, he wasn't he was a convert to him, he, he was just interested. And he was very intrigued by the idea. Um, and I remember we were, we were running late for one of the namazes, uh, the, one of the prayers, and he was really keen to pray. Um, and I was getting annoyed at everyone because it's, you know, 30,000 people. I'm like, this is a guest and I need to make a really good impression and everyone's getting in my way. He wanted to do wuzzles, so we had to wait in line. And then I was really getting miffed off. And then the Zan's the, the already been said. His, you know, his holiness has started the prayer. And he's like, let's just pray outside. Let's just pray here. Literally, and then just behind us, in a very clean spot in the grass, it was just a random row of people who came together. And then the whole feeling of just prostrating your head onto the floor and just hearing, you know, um, his holiness say the prayers and just, it's, I keep saying remarkable, remarkable, that I can't have any other word for it. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And, you know, that aspect of it again people go on wilderness retreats and and, so, and isolation camps and <laughs> you know no phone retreats and so on and so forth to experience that isolation mm. well one one natural thing is that because there's not great phone coverage it wasn't in recent years anyway <laughs> you're a bit detached from from reality Ooh, anyway that fear of not having proper mobile reception and trying <laughs> no. to find your car in the car park yeah. that's no, a whole other that issue uh, gotta get the ee sim no, no, yeah. Yeah. Oh, i'm already contracted with ESIM. that's uh, the only reason <laughs> exactly, I'm, really, yeah. I'm paying extra just i'm, I'm considering getting it this we, we yeah. need to we need to get an ee sim for yeah, it I think it someone mentioned uh, one, of, one of our missionary friends he mentioned the other day um, he made an Instagram video actually and um, I was sat in the office when he made it and he said um, 
he had an idea. He said he had a I think he has a, he has a small son. He said I'm gonna put air tag in his pocket so I can just track him across Jilsa. <laughs> and actually think about it, so that's not a bad idea, you know. Yeah. Kids um, get lost very easily. Yeah. Kids can get lost, but luckily again we have a system in place for that. Yeah. Where I think they go up to the stage and then you know the name is announced. Have and you, have you guys ever been? Lost? No, I have. See, see, I'd rather be lost and maintain being <laughs> lost than actually go on. I don't know. That's just I'm just too socially anxious. I would not. All right. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah, I, I haven't been personally as well, but we're, we're nearing the end of the show, and I guess I think we should leave uh, one sentence each, sort of, or a couple of sentences of what you're looking most forward to, and we'll go probably clockwise, so starting with uh, the, the cream. cream. Oh no, <laughs> you're um, at twelve o'clock o'clock. To uh, to, uh, to summarise, I think an hour and a half of an hour and forty-seven minutes of conversation will be quite difficult. Yeah. But for me, I'm just looking forward to renewing my oath to myself mm-hmm. and to the community of bettering myself being a better person reflecting on the mistakes i've made and lessons i've learned and again using this year using this as a springboard for the next year being a better person and all these skills that you mentioned you know personal skills self-reflection skills technical skills essentially the all a means of improvement i think that is the key word for me for for this jail side for most jail sides, is self-improvement and that is something a concept again that his holiness every week he, he explains so the need for reflection mm. and self-improvement I think that's a very key point. And if all we all incrementally improve every year, then well, collectively the world will become a better place um, by the very nature of it. So, so that's the emphasis for me. Keyword self improvement. I'm looking forward to just experiencing, visualizing, and seeing in person that global brotherhood, seeing everyone come across these three days from these different countries, speaking their various languages and their various cultural clothes, and just sharing and partaking in that spirit, that global brotherhood spirit. Global brotherhood spirit. Uh-huh. I'm not sure exactly what I'm looking forward to. There's too much to choose from. Much, <laughs> but uh, I think the exhibitions are looking good this year as well. Mm. So the Real Religions are doing a special uh, God Summit. Mm. So like an um, interactive experience. And I think there's some sort of planetarium as well mm. where you can see a uh, visualisation of the solar lunar eclipse that took place. Wow. So you can see that as well. That looks pretty good. And obviously we've got the now the Mughsan, which is kind of the official photography department, yeah. do a big exhibition, the outreach department, etc. So Review of Legends normally is the highlight. And uh, if people do not can't attend in person, they can also obviously listen or watch uh, on MTA as well, Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, our international global broadcast where we've got eight channels now. And uh, I've heard that in Africa, we're not only showing on MTA, but uh, national TV channels there, mm. news channels, they broadcast our sessions as well, which is absolutely amazing. But I think one thing that um not looking forward to, but most grateful for is to have the Jalsa itself. Yeah. Mm. Because we know for a lot of Ahmadis around the world, it's not possible. And specifically talking about Pakistan, where we're facing state sponsors persecution, we've not had a Jalsa for almost 40 years. Yep, that is great. So yeah, exhibitions... Self-reflection, global brotherhood. Global brotherhood. That is what we are looking forward to. So, I guess uh, <clears throat> we can. Uh, we've got about ten minutes, left, but we can, I think, call it a day with that because um, we all want to go back to our duties. Uh, <laughs> we've got a long day ahead. But uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, this was a uh, uh, Saturday morning live, and we hope uh, you have enjoyed this. Um, join us again next weekend uh, where our team will again be discussing hopefully post Jalsa Blues they'll be t- talking about because we all get post <laughs> that's the real thing that is that, a very and um, I actually don't take a day off after, after work because I'm like you know what I can handle I can handle it even <laughs> well, though well, worst thing is being on site on the Monday yeah, but they, I remember last year they tried to cheer us up. They made biryani. Uh, <laughs> they made biryani on the Monday to cheer the workers up. Oh, fair yeah. enough. So that's uh, that's it then. Uh, join us again next week where you can uh, join us from ten to twelve. Uh, 
another set of presenters from our team will be there. But other than that, um, this is um, it. And uh, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.